Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, Daniel says to King Belshazzar, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. And when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines and drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written and this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, you farsen. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have weighed, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple. And they put a chain of gold around his neck. They made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being 62 years old. The chapter began with a gala ball, a Babylonian ball. The king invited thousands of guests to toast the non-existent deities who were thought to ensure their safety against the Medo-Persian armies. The wicked king then ordered that the sacred vessels be taken from their temple treasury. These were the sacred vessels that had been taken from the Jewish temple before it was destroyed. It was then going to be used to honor the gods of Babylon. A hand appeared from another dimension and wrote a message on the palace wall. The frightened king called the chief priests, the astrologers, the magicians, the Chaldeans 
to read the words and discern the message. He offered lavish gifts for the one who was able to interpret the message. No one was able to interpret the mysterious words in verses 7 through 9. The queen mother commended Belshazzar to call upon Daniel, who had served his grandfather throughout the years in verses 10 through 12. The king once again offered rich rewards to the Jewish captive if he could just simply interpret the writing in verses 13 through 16. Daniel declines the king's rewards, but he still offers to read the writing on the wall. That's verse 17. Now, again, I want you to understand what's going on in the text. Daniel is an old man by this time. We know that Daniel, as a young man, left Jerusalem before its destruction. And even in that circumstance, with what little he could carry with him, one of the things I'm almost absolutely certain that he carried with him that long 800 miles was the scroll of Jeremiah. Daniel was a student of the scriptures, but certainly of the prophecies that were made by Isaiah and Jeremiah. Daniel was able to discern that the captivity of the Jews would last 70 years based on the scroll of Daniel, or Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 13. It was from this scroll of Jeremiah that Daniel knew in advance exactly what was going to happen to Babylon and its king. You need to understand something. Nations are rewarded or punished in this world. Nations don't go to heaven or hell. Nations rise and nations fall. People go to heaven or hell. People are evaluated in the next life. Not nations. Whatever is going to happen to a nation, it's going to happen in the here, in the, the now. So reward and punishment unfold here. Jeremiah describes Babylon's defeat in chapter 50, verses 1 through 20. He describes their desolation in chapter 50, verses 21 through 46. It, he describes their destiny in chapter 51, verses 1 through 64. So I want you to think about this. In chapter 50, in chapter 51, Jeremiah describes Babylon's defeat, desolation, and destiny. Daniel had poured over this scroll. When Jeremiah wrote the book, the Medes dominated the Persians. And Jeremiah's prophecy predicted the following. Number one, Babylon would be attacked from the north. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. And also again in verse 9 and verse 41, by the kings of the Medes. Chapter 51, verses 11 and 28. Jeremiah said, guess what? Babylon's going to be invaded, going to be invaded by the Persians. They're going to come from the north. Number two, Babylon is going to fall. 
not when they're poor, but when they're rich, with plenty, with abundance, well-provisioned in chapter 51, verse 26. Babylon was going to trust in its massive walls, towers, and high gates. That's number three in chapter 51, verses 53 through 58. Babylon, number four, the city would be taken by a clever strategy. According to the book of Jeremiah, it would be caught in a snare. Number five, the successful tragedy would be linked to the city's water supply. The river Euphrates served as a moat. And specifically, God said he would dry up her fountain in chapter 51, verse 36. This is exactly how the Persians are going to capture the city. They're going to divert the river. It's going to dry up. And they're going to literally sneak under the walls of the river into the city without bloodshed. Number six, the scheme would be connected with the flow of the Euphrates through Babylon. The passages or ferries would be taken by surprise. The reeds would be set on fire in chapter 51 verse 32. And number seven, at just the right moment, at a critical time, a feast would be in progress in which all the nobles and notables would be in attendance. And number eight, the drunkenness of this people would lead to their slaughter in chapter 51 verse 15. Daniel doesn't just walk into the room with nothing. He understands what's going on. The reason why I'm bringing this up to you is Daniel believed in predictive prophecy. Daniel believed that the Bible was true. Daniel believed Everything that God said about the past and the present was true. So much so that he literally is going to stake his life on the outcome of what the Bible says concerning the Jewish people. Concerning their, the, the word I'm looking for is discipline and punishment. Daniel believed God. Daniel took the prophecies, not in an allegorical way, but in a straightforward way. Daniel stakes his life that the prophecies of Jeremiah must come to pass. Babylon must fall. The vision that was given of the head of gold and the empire of silver and brass. That the unfolding of human history must take place. In Daniel chapter 2 verse 28 it says, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown... What will happen? Has the Bible told us everything that's going to happen? No. Has it, has it told us everything that you need to know that's going to happen? The answer is yes. You were told that Nero played the harp while Rome burned. Belshazzar feasts the very night that Babylon has fallen. What does the Bible tell us? Exactly what your text just says. Look at Daniel's rebuke. Look what it says in verse 18. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. In these verses, Daniel is going to contrast and compare the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and the reign of Belshazzar. Daniel begins by reminding the king of the lessons learned by his grandfather. 
lessons that Belshazzar chose to ignore. He begins by testifying to the sovereignty, the majesty of God. Now again, once again, Daniel refers to the true and living God as El, El Yon. Remember throughout the book of Daniel, this is the title of choice concerning the God of the Bible, the God of the Jewish people, the God most high as revealed to the Gentiles. Remember, this particular passage is written in the language of Aramaic. It's a message to Gentiles concerning the Jews. Daniel makes clear that God is above all. He's above all the false deities of Assyria and Babylon. He is above the Babylonian pantheon. Daniel affirms the supremacy and the superiority of God. It was God, he says. He says it clearly. It was God who made Nebuchadnezzar great. It was God who allowed Nebuchadnezzar both kingdom and majesty and glory and, and honor. Daniel reminds the king that God is sovereign over all kings and kingdoms. Daniel has already affirmed that God removes kings. He sets them up in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. The psalmist wrote, quote, in Psalm 75, 7, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another, unquote. The sovereignty of God means that even the most powerful human rulers are controlled by God. You may be tempted to think that it's men and women in Washington who control the world. It's not true. Or it's men and women in London or Moscow or Phnom Penh or pick any capital you want with whoever you want to place there. In the book of Ezra, we're told in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, so the Jewish leaders continued in their work and they were greatly encouraged by the preaching of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo. The temple was finally finished as had been commanded by God and decreed by Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. God was calling the children of Israel to go home after the captivity. It was God who said the temple is going to be rebuilt. It was God who said, I am going to bring forth a Messiah at exactly the right time and in exactly the right circumstances. God is in control. Ezra makes it clear that the rebuilding of the temple is first commanded by God and then by kings, his instruments. Sovereignty is a word that we use to describe God's authority, God's control, God's power. In the book of Job, chapter 36, verse 26, it says, Behold, God is great. And we do not know him, unquote. Or another way of thinking about this is God is so great that we cannot begin to comprehend his eternal nature and power. We can 
toy with the idea of taking a trip. Imagine you could leave our solar system and then you could leave our galaxy and then you could travel to the very end where the stars are fixed in the sky and then go another eternity into the blackness of whatever is out there and God is still greater since nothing and no one compares to the God that the Bible talks about, we're obligated to listen to him. God's sovereignty is absolute. God isn't required to explain anything to anyone. In Job 38, we learn just how foolish it is to criticize God or complain to God or complain about what God is doing. It's foolish to say, why did you place me in the family that you placed me in? Why did you give me that wife or that husband? you got to own up to it. You had something to do with who you married or didn't marry. You had something to do with your life and your circumstances. The Lord calls on Job to prepare himself like a man. The Lord says, I'm going to question you. And you're going to answer me. People often say to me, when I meet God, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Whatever piece you were going to give him, you should keep for yourself. You're going to need it. When you meet God, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you won't question him. You'll answer his questions. When you appear before God, the first thing that is going to go through your head is, you mean everything that the Bible says about God is true? Yes. The thing that's going to go through your head is, you mean all of those weeks and months and years that I heard about the Bible and I heard about the stories in the Bible and I heard about what the Bible says about my life and my circumstances and my sin, that I'm an eternal creature, that heaven is a real place and that hell is a place that you want to avoid at all costs. It's all going to unfold before you. One of the most difficult things to grasp is that God's sovereignty and God's sovereign love extends to every part of the believer's life. In each of the events that we had at Blackpool, each and every night Franklin said, God loves you. Jesus loves you. There's a God who cares about you. You may have been told that God isn't good or that he doesn't care or that he doesn't think about you. Paul wrote with confidence, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't, life can't, the angels won't, the powers of hell itself can't keep God's love away. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, where we are and wherever we are, if we're high above in the sky, if we're in the deepest ocean, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is demonstrated in our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. In verse 19 it says, and because of the majesty that he gave him, all people, all nations, all languages trembled and feared before him. When Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. I want you to think about this for just a moment. 
Daniel is saying that God gave Nebuchadnezzar these powers at a point in history, not in order to honor Nebuchadnezzar, but in order to honor himself. Because he has a plan and a purpose. He has a strategy. What is Daniel saying? I want you to think about this for just a minute. God blessed Nebuchadnezzar. And that blessing caused people to fear him and tremble before him. With a single word, he could keep people alive. With a single word, he could put them to death. When I was in England, I was standing in the place near where Charles, the, one of the last, not the last king of, of, of uh, England, but he literally marched into the parliament and demanded as the king that everyone do exactly what he said. And the people revolted. They rose up against him and said, you know what, we're done with you. And they took him and they executed him. They hung him from a scaffold. The man who did that, his name was Oliver Cromwell. In the parliament, there's a statue of Oliver Cromwell facing Charles I, and they stare at each other every single day. Because God had a plan for the English people and the unfolding of those people. Oliver Cromwell was a Puritan. The Puritans were going to be eventually driven out and they would come here to the United States of America. You see, God has a plan and a purpose. All of history is unfolding for a reason. I want you to understand what the text means by what the text is saying. We are blessed by God in order to bless God. Whatever it is that you have been given, whatever it is, provision that you've been made, whatever circumstance that God has blessed you with, whether it's a sound mind or a sound body or whatever circumstances that you find yourself in, God has placed you in these circumstances to be a blessing for him. In verse 20, it says, but when his heart, that's Nebuchadnezzar's heart, was lifted up. And I want you to think about this. Why was his heart lifted up? Because he thought he was all that in a cup of tea. When I say yes, everybody listens. When I say no, everybody listens. If I say live, you live. If I say die, you die. And it went to his head. He began to imagine that the world in which he lived in was created by him and for him. Just like sometimes you're tempted to believe that everything that you have that you, you gave it to yourself, that you brought it to yourself, and that you deserve it. But the king is going to understand something. He's hardened in pride. He's deposed from his throne. They took his glory from him. Who's the they? It's the supernatural beings. The supernatural being who gave the king blessing is able to take it away. Even kings face danger when they're consumed with pride and arrogance. I remember in the 1980s, I didn't get to see a single episode of Bill Cosby because it was on 
Thursday nights when we had our midweek Bible study. For some reason, I missed that whole chapter in our history where Bill Cosby is playing America's dad. He's America's darling. How is it possible that you go from being one of the most famous, honored people in all of American history only to spend the last years of your life in prison? Is it possible that people who have so much can wind up with so little because they begin to believe what Satan says about them? In verse 21, it says, Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. The king knew the tale of his grandfather's vanity, insanity, confession, and restoration. He was aware of the God Most High. He was aware of the declaration that was given in chapter 4 by his grandfather. It was published and then disseminated all over the Babylonian Empire. God's patience and long-suffering can sometimes be seen as weakness or indifference. To our sin. King Solomon wrote of the tragedies and misgivings of his deep dive into sin. Solomon wrote, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. In modern terms, we would say, I thought that I got away with it. I never got caught. And because I got away with it and because I never got caught, God doesn't really care about what I do. God doesn't care. You may have grown up in a world where you've done things and said things and participated in things. And because you never got caught, that God is wholly indifferent. The Lord was patient with Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar a whole year before executing judgment. Belshazzar ignored his grandfather's testimony in chapter 4. In verse 22 it says, But you, his son, remember in the Aramaic language there's no specific word for grandfather. And so that word, be, but you, his son, that means you're his direct descendant. Belshazzar, you haven't humbled your heart, although you knew all of this. Did you have parents or grandparents who are honest about their failings? Did they beg you? Did they plead with you? Did they ever say to you, your life doesn't have to be like my life? You don't have to live a life of bondage to sin or iniquity. You don't have to touch the hot stove. 
You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. Your life doesn't have to end badly. Did they warn you of the dangers of lifting yourself up against the Lord of heaven? Did they warn you that it's probably not a good idea for you to ignore what the Bible says and ignore what God says and ignore his pleadings with you to turn from your sin, to turn to the Savior? Did they warn you about the dangers of lifting yourself up against the Lord of heaven? Did they warn you that holding on to pride and rebellion and sin is going to result in judgment? In verse 23 it says, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They brought the vessels of his house before you. And you, your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. Remember in the opening part of the the passage of the chapter, there's this reoccurring theme. You took the wine, you drunk the wine, you got drunk, you got drunk. You lived your life in inebriated disconnect. Look what it says. And you praise the gods of silver. And gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Look what Daniel says. Which do not see or hear or know. They're not real. The gold, the silver, the wood, the clay, the stone, everything that represents this world and the things that are in this world. He says, you praise the gods of silver and gold and broads and iron and wood and stone. But remember how they did it. They did it in the most blasphemous way possible. They took the golden vessels that were used as holy objects because the Jewish people were called not to a life of syncretism, but to a life of separation, of moving away from sin. And he says... And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you've not glorified. You've been told repeatedly, God made you. You aren't the object of some random chances over millions of years. You're not just a piece of dirt that's animated with consciousness. You're not an evolved animal. You were created by God and for God. You were made in his image. You were given a brain and a heart, but you were also given a soul and a spirit so that you could love him and know him. And remember what I've repeatedly told you, that Babylon, in the Bible, Babylon is the birthplace of idolatry. It is in Babylon where idolatry reaches its zenith during the reign of Nimrod and his crazy wife, Semiramis. Like a religious cancer, it spread throughout the world. This religious idolatry, you talk about organized religion, and you say, I hate organized religion. Well, guess what? I hate it too. Because the first organized religion was organized against God in order to glorify humanity's independence from God. 
And like a religious cancer, it spread. It, in, it infested Assyria and Egypt and the Indus Valley, which would become the modern progenitor of Hinduism. And then it spread in all of its manifestations in the Greek world and in the Roman world. And then vestiges of it still cling to certain Orthodox religions and, and Roman Catholicism and the Eastern strains of Catholicism. It is this idolatry that somehow leaves you with the impression that your good works, if they outweigh your bad works, are going to result in some sort of exoneration by God. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible seems to indicate that at the end of time, there will be a worldwide revival of idolatry in the last days, energized by evil spirits, bent on deception. Daniel's rebuke includes accusations of pride and blasphemy and idolatry and what I'm calling a persistent willful negligence of the truth, a world that embraces a willful, persistent neg negligence that says the Bible's not true, its message isn't true, its diagnosis isn't true, the solution that it offers is not true. And so every week, I remind you, the Bible is true. And what the Bible says about sin remains true. And the condition of the human heart, it remains true. And then in Daniel's revelation in verses 24 through 28, look what it says. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him. In other words, the manifestation, the supernatural manifestation that you saw it came from the God Most High. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. Now I want you to understand something. The message was in a known language. But it perhaps was in a foreign script. Or what we might call a strange font. It may have also been in the form of an anagram. It could have been that the letters were jumbled until Daniel separates the letters and then makes clear the meaning of the message. The first word is repeated for emphasis. Mene. Mene. I want to just bring a couple of things to your attention. This is the shortest prophecy in the Bible. Pause for a moment. This is the shortest prophecy in the Bible. Jonah's prophecy for the people of Nineveh were a mere eight words in the English language. In Jonah chapter 3 verse 4, Jonah said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This mysterious message, four words. About a dozen letters in the Aramaic language. This is the interpretation of each word, Daniel says. Mini, or mene. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, or tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres. 
Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, again, I want you to think about this for just a moment. These words are weights and measures, both in the Aramaic language and in the Hebrew language. Mene is a measure or a weight. In the New Testament, you've probably heard stories about a, a thing called amina, or what some people mispronounce, mina. Amina was 60 times the weight of a shekel. So mene, mina, tekel, shekel, perez, parsis. In other words, in the original language, it says heavyweight, weight, half a weight. What does it mean? Imagine you got a message. Those words, heavyweight, weight, half the weight. You know, when I was reading this, I thought to myself, sin is heavy. Sin is a weight. It's weighty. In the ancient, as well as the modern world, scales and balances have been used as symbols of measurement and justice. Even the Romans had eustesia, justice, with a scale. You've seen in images of judicial courts, you'll see an image of justice. She's blindfolded and she's holding a scale. And so throughout human history, these symbols of measurement have also indicated justice. Sin is disobeying God. Sin includes unintended wrongdoing. Sin is the universal separation of people from their sin. Sin is in our nature. It has to be faced by every single person. Sin is an offense that causes guilt and that guilt can begin to weigh on the surface of your soul maybe you grew up in a world where activity included two kinds of things things that we did and things that we must never speak about But it's still there, isn't it? The weight, the guilt, the reality. Daniel's rebuke is followed by Daniel's revelation. The mysterious hand and the fingers were sent by God. The message is short and consequential. The kingdom of Babylon will be given over to the Medes and the Persians and that Belshazzar will soon die. In other words, weighed. Weighty, half the weight. What does it all mean? How does God number? How does God measure? How does He evaluate kingdoms? How does He evaluate people? He's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. We're to act justly, we're to love mercy, we're to walk in humility. And what weight or measure does God use? It is the weight and the measure, it is the standard of His 
perfect holiness and his perfect righteousness. And now all of a sudden we understand what Paul means when he says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. Some more than others. Some with more grotesque iniquity. What does sin have in common with all peoples? It can be forgiven. You can experience forgiveness. The holy character and the revelation of God concerning his holy character, the revelation given is that no one measures up to God's holy standard. And so God himself will provide the substitute that's going to be necessary for you to have a right relationship with him. Jesus is going to come. It was always God's plan. It was always God's plan that he was going to send someone to rescue you. Elie Weissel, who was a survivor of the Nazi camp in World War II, wrote, without memory, there is no culture. Without memory, there would be no civilization, no society, no future. Without memory, no culture, no memory, no civilization, no society, no future. And so Daniel does what we all must do. He tells you, look at what the past has said about the human condition in order to understand how you can survive. The Bible teaches that the rise and the fall of civilizations will lie in God's hands. We would like to think that the depth and the breadth and the height and the glory of a kingdom is going to be based on man's ingenuity, man's brilliance, his wealth, his power. In this particular revelation, Daniel is going to say, guess what? Time is up. But there's two times that are up. The time of the golden kingdom and the time of this man's life. What is the cycle of civilization? History has a tendency to repeat itself. Civilization seems to follow this predictable timetable. People go, number one, from slavery to spiritual faith. Number two, from spiritual faith to courage. Number three, from courage to liberty. Number four, from liberty to abundance. Number five, from abundance to selfishness. Number six, from selfishness to apathy. Number seven, from apathy to dependence. Number eight, from dependence back to slavery. The cycle of civilizations repeats itself. I don't want to be enslaved. And so it's spiritual faith that gives you the mechanism whereby you can even understand the difference between what it means to be enslaved and what it means to be free. And so people go from faith to courage and from courage to liberty and from liberty to abundance. But sometimes that abundance brings selfishness and sometimes that selfishness brings apathy and sometimes that apathy makes us dependent once again. Arnold Toynbee, the great British historian, was asked if he changed his mind about Western civilization. Toynbee wrote, quote, out of the 21 civilizations preceding this one, 19 have been destroyed by a mixture of atheism, 
materialism, socialism, alcoholism, unquote. In answer to the inquiry, he replied, quote, only this, that it looks now as if the number one enemy of the American way of life is drunkenness. If your people continue the present increase of drunkenness, nothing can save you from destruction. History is altogether against you, unquote. The Babylonian people found themselves intoxicated with their glory, with their majesty, with their supremacy, with their ascendancy, and Babylon had its moment. The Medes and the Persians would have their moment. The Greeks and the Romans would have their moment. When I was in Britain, I couldn't help but think that there was a time in 1810 where all but 22 countries in the world had been invaded by Britain. One out of every five people on the planet were subject to Britain. That means that Britain owned 20% of all of the wealth in the whole wide world. We will have our moment. But one day the moment will end. And we will join the sands of civilizations that have gone before us. And one day you will end. Some of you are fortunate enough to still have your parents alive. Some of you are fortunate to have your grandparents alive. But some of you have already taken the journey. Grandma and Grandpa are gone. Mom and Dad are gone. And some of the lessons that they taught you, you remember. And some you've forgotten. Someone once wrote, there is a line by us unseen that crosses every path. The hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. Indeed, the doomed one's path below may bloom as Eden bloomed. He did not, does not, will not know or feel that he is doomed. I want you to think about what you're reading in your text. Daniel reveals the judgment and he pronounces it. How does Belshazzar respond? Look what it says in verses 29 and 30. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and they put a chain of gold around his neck and they made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years of old. The king's last command would have little consequence. This is Belshazzar's last hurrah. He commands that Daniel be clothed with purple, a chain of gold be placed around his neck, that he be made the third ruler in the kingdom, that he be made the third ruler in the kingdom that's destined to die. It was an effect. Listen carefully. The king's last gesture of defiance. In what way, you might think? The king summoned his servants. 
The last thing this king does, he calls on the keeper of the royal wardrobe. He calls on the keeper of the gold. He calls on the keeper of the record books. In a few hours, there is no throne. There is no power. There is no gold. It's going to belong to someone else. That very night, Darius the Mede enters Babylon, kills Belshazzar, and begins his rule in the city. The drunken king has no idea that during his gala ball, the Medes and Persians are diverting the river, that the enemy are already marching into the city through the muddy under riverbed. So who is this person mentioned in 31? Verse 31, scholars include possible candidates, Guberu or Uberu, the governor under the Cyrus, the king of Persia. Darius may be another name or title for Cyrus himself. It may be Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, who serves as ruler of Babylon. The most important thing isn't about the identity of this person, but rather the most important thing about this is the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy exactly as how he said it was going to unfold. The fall of Babylon was going to be swift and sure. There's going to be relatively little bloodshed. Indeed, some of the population had no idea that the Medes and Persians had actually breached the city and that their king was dead and that they even had a new king. Not all of the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah concerning Babylon were fulfilled. Some remain to be fulfilled at a future date. Would you like to know about that? Listen to my tapes on the book of Revelation. (laughs) Or would you like me to teach Revelation again? In the future, the Bible says the Antichrist will have three capitals. Rome, a political capital. Jerusalem, a spiritual capital. And Babylon an economic capital. It's all in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But these verses have an equally and another profound significance. I just want to point it out to you. It's more than simply a date marker that divides these impressive kingdoms, the kingdom of gold and the kingdom of silver. The book of Genesis records the prophecy that Noah passed over his second son, Ham, in silence because of his misbehavior. He prophetically cursed Ham's son, Canaan, because he would be the father of the perverse and wicked nations that filled and then defiled God's promised land. He blessed his youngest son, Shem, from whom would come the Semitic people, particularly Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Judah, and down the line through David, then ending up with Jesus. Finally, he blessed his oldest son, Japheth, and passed on to him the promised expansion, enlargement, political dominion, and prominent place in the tent of Shem. But I want you to understand something just very quickly. Satan was committed to making sure that Noah turned out to be a false prophet The first great empire was Hamitic and Semitic. The Egyptians were from the the son of Ham and the Assyrians and Babylonian empires were both Semitic. But with the death of Belshazzar, the world empires are going to pass to the children of Japheth. And it would remain 
with Japheth. The Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans were all descendants of Japheth. The kingdoms of this world will remain in Japheth's hands until the Antichrist appears on the scene. And then he's going to be swept away by the coming of Jesus. There's a Chinese proverb that's wonderful. It says, quote, weak ink is better than a strong memory. Write it down. God's written it down. God's written it down. God wrote it down so that you would know that everything that he says about you and your future and how you can be saved, it all remains true. Are you a sinner? Your sins can be forgiven. Would you like to experience forgiveness? Forgiveness is found in Jesus by loving him, trusting him, believing him. All of human history unfolded. Two reasons. To glorify God and to redeem you. It's all going to happen exactly as the Bible foretells. And the rest of the book of Daniel, it's going to be my pleasure to point out to you the power of predictive prophecy and the reality of the salvation that's written about in the Bible. Aren't you excited? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful that we have a sure and certain word. Lord, we remember what Jesus said. This is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms. Lord, we have assurance that everything that's been written about you must come to pass. And so, Lord, it's with renewed joy and a desire to praise you for who you are that, Lord, we commit our lives afresh to you with a renewed enthusiasm for the word of God with a deeper love for our Savior and with the certain hope that the future is going to unfold exactly as the Bible says. In Jesus' name, amen.